Hello, and welcome to the Women in Archaeology podcast, a podcast about, for, and by women in the field. My name is Kirsten Lopez, and I'll be your host for this episode. Today, we will be chatting with our co-host, Emily Long, and her experience as a fire archaeologist, uh, and Chelsea Slotin will be joining us as well. Thank you so much for being here. Happy to be here. Glad to be back. Yes. It's nice. It's been a while, so it's great to hear your guys' voices. Agreed. It has been. Emily, today you get to sit on the other side of the table. Oh, my. Interviewee, not the interviewer. Oh, geez. Okay. <laughs> Here we go. Feel pressure. Feel pressure. <laughs> so it's uh, been a, a little bit since you've done the fire archaeology, if I'm uh, correct, a couple years. Yes, um, it's definitely been a couple years. So just uh, for, for context for our listeners, um, so I'm a federal archaeologist. I work for the government. And for a lot of land managing agencies, um, Forest Service, Park Service, Bureau of Land um, Management, so on, uh, part of the job of being an archaeologist is being a fire archaeologist. It's just one of the many hats that you have to wear. So not only are you surveying for trails, um, as soon as your agency catches on fire, uh, you're probably going to have to have the training to be able to go out and help protect these resources. And so this is just from my experience from working for the Forest Service and the Park Service, doing a lot of fire archaeology for them, being a what is called a resource advisor or read. And you get into that. But yeah, so it's been a few years. Uh, my family is very happy. I don't really do this anymore. <laughs> I work for a different agency now that it, it works more with private land as opposed to federal land. And so uh, that opportunity is not really there anymore. And so I'm my mother in particular is very happy. I'm not being, you know, popped in helicopters and sent out to fire locations or, you know, going on these 14 day stints to be like um, running around with bulldozer crews and hot shots and stuff and being like yeah. burn that don't burn that you know yeah but it sounds like a lot of fun oh it is so much fun it's absolutely terrible and so much fun at all at the same time <laughs> <laughs> yeah and so obviously um with everything that's going on in the west coast of the u.s right now there's a lot of fires burning yes um and a lot of reeds are you know actively working probably without very much sleep. Um, do you maybe just want to start by giving us a, a quick peek into what a standard, if such a term can be applied, um, but a standard 24 hours as a fire archaeologist looks like? Sure. Um, so you're definitely right in that you don't get very much sleep. And a lot of that really has to do with the general fire schedule. Um, Usually, like you start with meetings at like six thirty, seven o'clock in the morning. There's a general roll call um, for all the resource advisors, um, the uh, the fire managers, the camp managers. All of these folks all come together, and we look at a map at where every where everything is happening on the fire. So where are the um, lines where if there's containment of the fire, where's the fire going, um, what is proposed for that day. And then people get split up into different groups. Um, so you might have a hotshot crew. Those are the, uh, they're, they're the most amazing groups of people, amazing men and women that like, they're on the front line 
trying to contain that fire in any way possible. And you get your smoke jumpers. People are jumping out of helicopters to try to get into these areas. And even our type two uh, crews are amazing because they're out there trying to clean up these fires, create fire lines, all this stuff. So you're working with a major group of people, huge groups of people. And each of these groups might get a resource advisor, and that can be an archaeologist, a biologist, a geologist, all the ologists you can possibly imagine. And so if you're a fire certified um, read, because there's different categories of that as well, you are probably staying in the camps and then you're going out on the front lines of the fire. And so you need different trainings within that. And I can get into that later. So it really depends what you're doing, whether or not you're a read that stays in the camp or at the um, management center, like doing GIS, mapping, or if you're um, within the camps themselves and then working directly with different groups. So for one example is I've been out a bunch with dozer crews. So they're um, folks who, uh, there's a dozer boss who directs a bulldozer and then the bulldozer and they're cutting line. So these massive areas of just exposed earth to be able to create a fire break. And so the archeologist runs in front of the dozer boss to try to survey that area um, before anything could potentially be destroyed. So that's one thing could be doing. Also um, could be working directly with crews on helping them direct where a hand line might be put, um, directing crews on putting lines around fire or around um, cultural resources. Um, it, it really depends. So if a typical day you're getting up, you're getting going, and then you're pretty much working um, a 10 to potentially 16 to 18 hour day. That sounds um, brutal. It really is. And it's 14 days straight or 21 days straight. And you will get sick because oh, wow. camps are disgusting. Um, not, and <laughs> I mean, the camp managers are amazing. There's everything you do, but you got a whole bunch of folks in one location using porta johns germs are going to spread. You get what's called the camp crud. So everybody's getting sick. You're not sleeping. Um, and it's just because when you're in a, an emerging situation, it's really go, 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 go. And so if you know reads, there's a good reason why they're exhausted when they get back from a stint. Of yeah. <laughs> these fires. Um, and I always manage to get sick um, on these, on these fires. Uh, usually like really crazy combinations of like bronchitis and you know strep throat and a cold <laughs> well i can't imagine that the air quality is doing anybody any favors in terms oh, of you know yeah. feeling and um, and it's possible your camp can get evacuated because a fire's coming um there are spike camps and then main camps so it depends where you are i've been in spike lamp camp locations where you're in a further out location and so it's easier for you then to quickly get to maybe an engine crew that needs to be able to put out um certain areas like get water to certain areas and then you can help them say like that area is okay to draw water from because that's not a historic dam whereas over there we have some historic acequias don't touch those or that kind of thing. And so when I first started as a read, I had a paper map and a tremble. And I would literally be like, where are you going? Look at the map, look at the tremble, be like, you can go there. You can't go there. You can go over there. Can't go there. We don't know about this area. Nobody surveyed it. Um, and then as going along, getting more information, um, 
you're doing a little bit of everything. Now, as a read, it's always possible, too, that if you're getting into an extreme emergency situation, you could then be put on a fire line to help mm. dig line with the fire crews because it's an intense, desperate situation. So I've dug line two. I am short and chonky, and so I do not keep up well <laughs> with fire crews. And it's very obvious, like, they are in the peak of physical condition. It's amazing. That was very long and drawn out, but the pretty much, like, a full day, you can be in the fire camp doing a ton of, like, writing reports, trying to get GIS information together, trying to get... Um, everything put together so you can give the fire crews the best information that you have because we, we have such sensitive information. We can't just give it to people, you know, to be like, here's all the information. Also working with um, tribal fire crews. It's really cool. A lot of tribes have their own fire crews. And so working with them um, and their elders can be a major part of it as well. And trying to help protect sacred locations. Mm, right. Working with maps with that. I mean, right. so it really, you could be out on the fire line directly. You could be indirectly within the fires that you're trying to do. Um, they're trying to create larger fire breaks for when that fire will eventually or potentially get to those areas. Or you might just be back at camp or you could be at the fire center or you could be in your own office doing yeah. the GIS work. So it really depends where you are within all of that. And I've done a bunch of those different roles, but I've primarily been um, at the fire camps and then on the fire line. Okay. So there is no standard day. There is no standard day. It One day could be the most boring thing on the planet. I've had um, fire situations where nothing was happening, nobody needed me, and I was told to take a nap in my truck. There other days, it was a literal 18-hour day. And I had a bunch of those in a row because um, the fire spiked so quickly. My other archaeology colleagues and I were put on a fire line and we're like, we're archaeologists. And they're like, they said, we don't care. And they here's a shuttle. Yeah. I was put on a fire engine crew at one point. I, I know. (laughs) They're like, and they're like, what, Carrie, go put out that fire. And I'm like, how? I am not trained for this. Exactly. And there were these things called piss pumps. And it's like a giant bag of water with a little pump. And so the backpack's already about 40 to 50 pounds. And then they threw like 60 pounds of water. I mean, I just fell over. So I was like, like, I'm not built for this. (laughs) So a read day can really run the gamut of you're in your office to you're in a spike camp in the middle of it. That's fantastic. And it's something that's interesting um, out here on the West Coast right now. I know a number of um, archaeologists, both federal and state um, agency archaeologists, that have been put on the front fire lines with this September's uh, surge of fires uh, that has completely devastated the West Coast. Mm-hmm. Much of that is ongoing, but as of today, which would be September 20th for the recording, um, a lot of the Oregon fires and Washington fires are uh, fairly well contained or like under control. California is still pretty pretty wild uh, out there. And then what does Colorado's fire front look like right now? Um, it's definitely a lot calmer. Unfortunately, I don't really know containment levels wise, but um, I can at least tell you the smoke isn't as bad. Yeah, <laughs> and where I live, 
Um, they're getting closer to containment. Uh, there were, a, in essence, I mean, these were some of the largest fires in Colorado history. But for looking comparatively speaking to California, these fires are smaller. Um, yeah, that's and that's something that's pretty much across the West right now. All of these fires, like it's, it's a record-breaking fire season for sure. And I think it'll be interesting to see how our government decides to handle this in terms of funding capacity and getting enough um, bodies and knowledge out there to handle these fires properly in the future, because we all know that this is just going to continue. Exactly. That's a really good point. And so bring up one, we have climate change, which in in general is just going to make everything far more intense. But also what you're talking about with funding, most federal funding for fires tends to go more towards putting out the fire as opposed to preventing the fire. And we have a wealth. I mean, there's so much amazing information coming out of um, about looking at prehistorically and historically indigenous groups. using prescribed fires uh, for the landscape. And we also have indigenous groups today using um, prescribed fires as a mean to, as a means of reducing um, the fuel load of so having so many dense trees and brush and whatnot. And so it is shown, it's proven that this wealth of knowledge is desperately needed and desperately needs to be used. And so yeah. we need to, well, not we, but you know, federal agencies, really need to get on board with doing more with prescribed burns in that sense. And then also trying to get f- more funding towards that. Yeah. But yeah, obviously then climate change is a whole other. But management is a big part of that. And I'm glad you brought that up because I remember for the brief amount of time that I was working uh, with the forest service last year, um, the I remember the uh, forest archaeologist for the re, I think it was the regional district manager um, was there for a presentation or a learning something or other that I was at um, and in 2019 the forest service was running at a 40 percent staff mm-hmm. based off of the funding that they were given and that is it, it shouldn't in in the time of climate change and uh the amount of fires that have been growing annually for the last 20 years that should not be a thing um and noticed, most federal agencies are poorly understaffed like exactly poorly poorly understaffed and although all across the board which is crazy because I feel like there are actually some very well-qualified archaeologists I know who are looking for jobs. Exactly, right? <laughs> there are people to fill those positions. It's just a matter of like cutting through the bureaucratic rub tape to get the positions up and get the money. And, you know. and a lot of technicians out there are in that, if not peak, then close to peak physical shape from mm-hmm. doing many 10 or 12 hour survey days Um you know, digging, depending on where you are in the country, many tiny holes or many very large holes um, throughout your day. Uh, so it's it'll be interesting to see how this all change, changes um, 
because it will need to be. And it's really encouraging, Emily, to hear about all of the different roles um, that you fill for a couple of reasons. But one is that there's, you know, definitely a need, especially with the growing number and intensity of fires Mm -hmm. for fire archaeologists out there uh, that can wear all of the hats. Mm -hmm. In my experience, um, the Forest Service tends to be the most proactive in terms of making sure that they're archaeologists and have um, their it's your type two training means you're qualified to be with um, as a type two firefighter. So you're not front front lines. You're not a hot shot, but you're able to do um, a lot of the other work. And then you have this retraining and whatnot. Um, now, I, again, this, that's my own experience. And I feel like there's quite a few other agencies where they could be far more proactive in terms of making sure that all of their ologists have the retraining, yeah. even if they're um, a land managing agency that doesn't tend to have fires. Um, one of the things that happens with reeds is that you're called upon throughout the country. So there are, mm-hmm. are reeds from Arizona fighting on fires in Oregon and California. Yeah. And there's okay. a desperate need for all of these different um, specialties that they go all over the all over the United States. And sometimes even the world, there's been a number of reeds who have gone to Australia um, when there have been bad wildfires there. And so it's one of those things that, I mean, it's a little bit of one of my own soapboxes that I feel like it's something that's needed by all federal employees, that if they have a specific specialty, we should be able to be that resource during these emergency situations. Yeah. Well, it's interesting that you bring up that reeds can be shipped around the country because I would imagine that in the past when you didn't have these, uh, I guess people call them like mega fires, mm-hmm. that you could get people from other counties in the same state that you're in or from a nearby state. But when you have multiple states that are having mega fires at the same time, that you, you would have to pull from further away. Mm-hmm. And like, I know, for example, I did some of my training uh, down in Louisiana, where hurricanes are a much bigger concern than fire. But I don't remember ever hearing about fire archaeology as a thing as an undergrad in the field school I went to, which was in Pennsylvania. And granted, these are, I mean, we have occasional fires, but nothing like what you see out west. Yeah. Um, and it does seem like doing some more across the board training would be really beneficial. I lived out West and had no idea it was a thing until I got my first job in the federal service. And it was like, surprise. Yeah. Fire boots. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. That was an interesting uh, thing that popped up just this fire season. Cause there's so many archeologists that I've seen like in the past couple weeks that have posted photos of like, well, I'm out on the fire line now today, or like we all got transferred in to go help with the fire um, at different levels. Like you're saying from front lines to uh, there's a state forestry archeologist um, that I know that ended up helping with evacuations Mm -hmm. um, and getting people who lived in the rural areas of the coast uh, range in the dense forests up there, getting them off of their property um, safely and to a, a, an evacuation zone. So that was uh, really interesting to see how both the, the intense need all of a sudden and how 
like everyone just kind of transitioned and moved so quickly um, Mm -hmm. when that need arose. But it definitely, like you guys were just saying, instilled the the idea that like, oh shit, this is something that we're really going to have to expand on. Oh yeah. It's, and it's going to be something that's ongoing needed. And I do have to say probably the scaredest I have ever been um, was on a wildfire. And I can't, say enough how brave one the firefighters are and everybody associated with them but then also two the reeds that put themselves in some pretty crazy situations that um, are far from i mean they're as safe as they can be but at the end of the day these are very dangerous situations and so we always need more people we need more support but then can't say enough about the people we have yeah incredibly brave for sure for sure well i think we are at a wonderful uh pause point for our break um so we will be back here shortly and uh, continue discussing the ins and outs of fire archaeology here with Emily Long. Woohoo! Yay! Looking for other archaeology podcasts? There are so many to choose from. Why not try Archie Fantasies and bust myths surrounding ancient finds and people? Or learn about the study of animal bones and archie animals? There's also the great Go Dig a Hole and the Ark and Anth podcasts. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to the Women in Archaeology podcast and all of these fun archaeology podcasts that are available on iTunes, Spotify, all over the place. Thanks for listening. Here we are back again. Thank you for hanging out with us for our second segment. Um, So Emily is here. Emily Long, uh, one of our regular co-hosts, is talking about her experience as a fire archaeologist with several different uh, managing agencies over the years. And uh, to talk a little bit about protecting cultural resources as a fire archaeologist and kind of what that looks like. Uh, So take it away. Cool. Um, One of the big things is, I mean, fire and the way fire wildfires are treated, it's constantly in a changing. And, and so if any of the information I'm providing is outdated, I certainly apologize. Please contact us. We're always happy to get more information. Um, so this is all based, you know, on um, my experience from uh, start my first job with the Forest Service to about um, four years ago. So things have changed. Um, things are always changing. Same with the retraining. But and how to protect cultural resources, there's only so many different ways you can go about it. And pretty much like with any undertaking, the easiest way to protect an archaeological site is avoiding it. So if you can have just like a site be completely avoided by fire, by construction, that's the easiest route. And so if you know a fire, the fire is going to just pretty much like go up a different area and you don't even need to worry about the site. Excellent. Also, there are a number of sites that can burn. It all obviously um, depends on the level of intensity of that fire, but there are certain things like certain lithic scatters. You probably wouldn't be able to do certain kinds of research on the flakes and stuff. I think fire can change like obsidian hydration dates. I could be wrong with that. Something along those lines, or if the flakes will look heat treated when they actually weren't heat treated. 
But beyond that, I mean, lithic scatters and stuff like that, they've probably burned over many times um, since the creation of that site. And so there are certain things that can just burn. Now, I imagine anything that's still underground, right? Because archaeology is kind of digging stuff up. So if there are sites that you've surveyed and you know exist but haven't ever been excavated, like presumably letting that burn. I don't live in a state where fires happen. I've never been a fire archaeologist. Trying to avoid fire, it's a little bit scary to be honest. That's a really good question. And again, it all depends on that level intensity of the burn. Um, What kind of, uh, so when when you hear like fuel load is like how much um, stuff that can burn around it. And so for something that's buried, you can have root burn. And so the fire, if it gets the entire tree and it goes all the way down to through the stump into the roots, if you have buried material next to it, let's say a wall, a hearth or something like that, and then the tree is gone, you're going to have erosion to that particular site, that feature, Mm. because what was keeping it, you know, maybe upright or in place is no longer there. And so that fire could then, um, it can mess with charcoal dating, um, if you have root sure. burn going through, um, it can mess with your hearth if you're trying to get dates from that. It can also completely destroy something that's buried. So it all it all depends the context, as with everything in archaeology. <laughs> context is key. Um, yes. So it really depends. So there are certain, yeah, so there are certain things where you probably don't need to worry as much. But if you have a lot of buried material and trees... Um, then you're probably gonna have root burn and you're probably gonna have erosion to that site. Mm -hmm. Um, Or like where it might pit out where that tree used to be, you might have exposure of the archaeological remains. Um, Same with brush and that kind of thing. If there's nothing holding the grass or the brush in place because it's all all been burned, then you're going to have a lot of exposure of subsurface material potentially. Right. But that's also potentially months or years after exactly. the fire itself. That one's tricky. And that gets into post-burn analysis and stuff. Um, so certain, like I said, certain things can burn. Like there are certain like historic artifact scatters, tin cans and glass that might be okay to burn. But if it's a really heavy, hot burn, it's going to melt glass. It's going to melt tin cans. It can make, um, if you have like bedrock matades, if it gets hot enough, that rock will spall. Mm. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. and so and um, rock art if it's there's like a wall of rock art that rock art can spall or gets um, sooty or completely disappear if it's paint you know if a fire gets right up next to it so it really depends um, a lot of stuff can burn and then a lot of stuff can't it all depends that level of intensity and then what kind of archaeological remains you have so um, one of the things you can do if you have like um, trying to think like a Pueblo and field house or something, like a standing structure. Something you can do is dig a fire line around it and decrease any um, potential burning fuels within that site boundary. Mm-hmm. So if the fire comes up towards that site, it's just going to kind of putter out once it hits that line. And then if there were like embers and stuff, nothing could catch within that site. So that's one thing that can be done. Um, reducing fuel load around sites is always a good thing. Um, you can set up sprinklers around structures, buildings, that kind of stuff. So sprinklers are an option. Um, There's a, uh, so the material that's used for fire shelters um, that 
uh, firefighters carry around. Um, it's used if you're going to potentially have a burnover or be too close to the fire and you have no way to escape. You have a fire shelter and you look like a burrito. You kind of like <laughs> go into this little like shelter Shiny. thing that you flip out and you crawl into um, and then you hold down. That same material can be put on um, rock faces where there's rock art. So mm. you can try to protect that as best possible. And you can also wrap entire buildings in oh, that. Wow. I've seen Puebloan structures have that material put on it. So it, it can be very versatile. And I mean, obviously, if the fire gets right up next to it, your building could still burn and that kind of stuff. Or you can still have spalling. But it's a really great thing if from the heat, protected from the heat and then um, embers and stuff. So that that material is really cool to work with. Um, and they call them in like giant rolls. So it just looks like you have these giant rolls of aluminum foil. It's very crinkly and it's like a foil blanket. Nice. Um, other stuff that can be done, um, you can use like there's slurry, um, fire retardant, foam. Um, you see a lot of the stuff dropped from building or buildings, dropped from planes onto buildings. Mm -hmm. um, like red goop coming out of planes. Yeah. And so that's a possibility. Um, and then there's like a foam you can like cover stuff in. The The downside to it is that stuff can really be bad for archaeological sites. It can stain everything red and you can't mm -hmm. really get that off. Um, and like there's certain chemical reactions that can be really bad. But I guess then the, I mean, the flip side is, but you still have the site. Yeah. Yeah. So it's one or the other type of thing. Um, water drops are always a possibility. And so same idea, plane or helicopter dropping water. Um, the hard thing with that is that can cause erosion. And so like the intensity that it's hitting something, because I've heard that like during these water drops, it can knock firefighters off their feet, depending on the intensity in which it's being dropped. And so mm -hmm. if you think like hitting a um, fragile structure or something, then it'll collapse. Yeah. So there's kind of like a flip side to every potential treatment or possibility, but there there's just certain things that can be done. But at the end of the day, no site is worth a life. And so that's why, we, I mean, it's really sad when a lot of these places burn, um, hearing a lot of stuff and um, like state parks with historic buildings, um, yeah. parks about uh, national parks with like ranger stations, stuff, a lot of historic buildings burning. But at the other end of that, it's like if it would have been an extreme danger to life, then it's just not worth it. Better it burn than get somebody hurt. And it does add, I mean, it's one of those things that we sometimes have to remind ourselves as archaeologists is history is being created all the time. Mm -hmm. um, so, for example, a red staining to an archaeological site that was saved may be a really good, say, like, years down the road, interpretive signal of this was something that was able to save this site. Like it's something that it can add to the interpretation and richness of the site. Mm -hmm. um, and just being in this, well, we have to save everything a hundred percent mindset can be distracting from why we're saving it. Like you're saying, making mm -hmm. sure that life is important, you know, it's paramount. Um, but even if you can't save it 100%, knowing and having these places as examples for why forestry management, uh, 
global warming, good administration, funding for agencies are all really important. Um, it's, it's just an example of, you know, how things are changing through time. Um, mm-hmm. that's, a, that's a really good point. Um, with, with some of the, um, fire work that, that is done, um, unfortunately, it's highly possible for archaeological sites to just be completely obliterated by okay. some of the fire activities when um, lines are being created by bulldozers, by um, hand lines and that kind of stuff. Yeah. And that's not an uncommon thing to happen is then trying to find the archaeological site like it was here and you just find little bits and pieces of it and a bulldozer went through it because they were trying to plan ahead um, for where a fire was going. And then they just put in the line because of an emergency situation, but that ended up destroying a whole bunch of sites in the process. Yeah. Um, so there's kind of, there's that side of it too, that you mean you can't always have a read on every, on every little thing that's happening. And unfortunately cultural resources do sometimes get destroyed in the process, but then it goes back to that, like, well, it was an emergency situation. Things yeah. need to be done, but well, like more than human life. Exactly. Yeah. But um, there's, I mean, <laughs> in, in the words of a, a fire boss that I met, that it's like a crew went dozer crazy and just they're like, let's put in lines. And a dozer was like putting in lines everywhere and destroyed a whole bunch of stuff. And the fire didn't even go anywhere near there. Oh, no. But it's like stuff happens and it's unfortunate. But and um, all of that gets recorded. So even a destroyed site still gets recorded yeah at least we have well and i also think some of the stuff that i read kind of in preparation for this episode because Mm -hmm. as i stated zero experience or knowledge about fire archaeology um talk some about the possibility of fires to you know expose uh sites that may not have been obvious before Mm -hmm. um where you can see you know, depressions or ridges in the ground that may be the outlines of previous structures and that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, so I feel like along with the potential for destruction, which is obviously bad, there's also the potential for discovery of new sites or information. Mm-hmm. It's oh, yeah, a definite possibility and it happens. And it's really pretty spectacular, especially... So uh, when I worked for the Forest Service you get in areas with really dense pine duff. And so you might know there's a site there. You maybe found a, a piece of pottery or you found a few flakes or something. Fire goes through and you find an entire Pueblo complex because um, it was all hidden by pine duff, by trees, by fallen limbs, all this stuff. And so fire does have the potential to expose so much information and so that's why a major part of wildfires and you don't see this really on the news is the post burn analysis of everything and sometimes it's called bear work or um it's different things like while they're doing erosion control and whatnot trying to prevent mudslides and stuff after a fire part of that is also having reads on that or people archaeologists from that particular agency going out and trying to see which sites were burned, what's still there, and if there's anything new. And there's tons of new sites. Uh, When I worked in California, uh, a big 
thing that was done by the um, indigenous communities there was creating these um, bed bedrock mortars on these massive boulders and they'd have a pestle to go in it and for yeah. growing acorn seeds. Well, those would get filled with pine duff and the entire boulder would be covered in pine duff. You get a light burn in there and all that pine duff is gone. Oh my gosh, look, there are five boulders full of, you know, these um, bedrock mortars. So it's really, there's a lot of possibility with that. Sad side of that is if the fire was really hot and intense, it can destroy a lot. Um, so you might not get the full of what that site would have been because so much of it burned. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, that's just kind of unfortunately how it is. And then on top of that, here you got a public land agency and you suddenly have tons of archaeological sites exposed. You're going to have vandalism. Yeah. Yeah. Um, There's this weird looky-loo thing on wildfires. People will literally go on, on their gators, ATVs and stuff during a wildfire that's closed off to the public and try to drive around. To watch Why? the fire. I don't know. And I've seen this happen where it was literally a golf cart on a forest road and we were maintaining the road. And it was like, what the hell was just that? And it was like a bunch of old people in a golf cart, like, hello, and just like driving by. And it's like, there's a fire. What are you doing? Um, and so there's a, a lot of people trying to just look around with that. But then on top of that, there are those who will then go steal artifacts destroy archaeological sites, that kind of thing. Yeah, because it's exposed. Oh, yeah. yeah. I mean, it's amazing on the archaeological end, being like, oh, my gosh, look at all these amazing artifacts. But the flip side then uh, is... Leave them in place. <laughs> yes. <laughs> leave them there. And that's... Yeah, there's often um, around here when that happens, not the looting part, but the exposure part, when people leave it alone, the archaeologists from that agency will often create a, um, like an exhibit or um, some sort of presentation uh, in the local cultural center or the local ranger station on the history of that area uh, based off of the archaeology that they find. And there's been stuff... Uh, you know, around here that has been exposed by fire. It's something that happens pretty commonly enough that CRM companies are often actually hired to do the, the post fire analysis stuff mm-hmm. um, for the, the archeology span anyway. Oh yeah. Um, oh yeah. It's always yeah. worth noting. Like there's so much educational opportunity with this exposed stuff. And I always feel like you got to mention it is very, very illegal to take anything from exactly. public lands. That's Forest Service, Park Service, anything that belongs to the government or tribal lands. You cannot remove anything from it. It would be a dumb reason to go to jail yes. for having stolen some artifacts. Or, and that's where, you know, the it's it's one of those things that's not only very illegal, but it's very expensive. Mm-hmm. Uh, the fines are, what, 300000 per occurrence if you are, you know. I think that might be for a repeat and- offender. Yeah. Also, morally and ethically repugnant. Don't do it. Yes. I mean, there's many reasons why not to do it. Uh, but for those who are attracted to the idea, going, oh, this is cool. Like, it's going to be out there. It's dangerous to go out there when you're that close after the fire. People who do go out there for the archaeology are trained to keep an eye out for embers that pop back up. And we're wearing special equipment. 
Exactly. And, and it's not safe for anyone to go wandering out right after a fire and collect artifacts for so many reasons. I just don't understand why you would do that. There was a fire. People are dumb. People are fly drones into fires. And, and the crazy thing with that, like that's been a huge issue. It will mess with air traffic in terms of like the, the planes trying to drop water. Um, it messes with radio traffic. Mm -hmm. It's like, just don't, don't do stupid things. (laughs) Yeah. It's hard to prevent people from doing stupid, but you know, you do what you can to try and inform people as to why it's a bad idea. Yeah. Like, Not don't do gender reveal parties with fireworks. Come on, people. Oh, my God. That, how many of the, the forest fires in the last three years have been started by fireworks? Oh, a good thing to note, if they are able to trace the fires to a specific person or group of people, they have to pay for the cost. Oh, yeah. The, um, millions, billions, millions and millions of dollars. They will okay. have to pay for it. A couple years ago, there was the Eagle Creek fire up here just outside of Portland that evacuated some of the Portland suburbs. Um, and in this was in the, the Columbia Gorge scenic area on a trail. They were able to track down who did it because it was a group of teenagers who threw a firework down this ravine and posted it on YouTube. <laughs> and... This kid now has to do community service and fire training from, like, now to, I think he was 15. So from then through adulthood, like, into adulthood. Like, he had community service every summer plus fines paid by his parents for, like, six years or seven years or something. But it was, like, a you know, millions of dollars. Um, they were able to... Sit, save in a weirdly miraculous way the Multnomah Falls Historic Lodge um, in Falls area Mm -hmm. but a lot of a lot of stuff burned and went up and it's been in a lot of the trails are inaccessible even today and this was like three years ago so there's a lot of work that's had to go into like reconstructing a lot of the trail area because it's a very densely visited um, hiking spot because it's a half hour from the city um, mm-hmm. or from the central part of the city. So it's it's interesting to see how um, that is applied because people, I mean, the agencies are not afraid to prosecute arsonists for sure. And a lot of these ones are definitely being sought after um, for re- reparations and payments. As they should be. Yes. So don't start fires, people. Yeah. The loss of life, property, and then on our end of things, cultural resources is not worth letting people know the gender of your baby. Yeah. I mean, I did a stamp in the card or Facebook. That's cool. That won't (laughs) set anything on fire. No. (laughs) Not at all. It's all happy and supports the post office. Hooray. Important yes. things these days. <laughs> On that note. <laughs> <laughs> um, we are uh, at the end of our second segment. Thank you, Emily, for going into some detail on how uh, we protect our cultural resources during a fire. 
Uh, so we're going to take a quick break and be back uh, to chat about how to become a read if you are so inclined. We'll see you soon. Did you know that we have a blog? Check out the Women in Archaeology website for a variety of blog posts as well as past episodes. Interested in supporting the podcast? From the website, you can check out our Patreon account and learn about the different ways to help support the blog and podcast. We can give you a cool sticker in return. Again, thank you for listening. Well, thanks again for sticking around for our last segment here on the Women in Archaeology with Emily Long and talking about fire archaeology. Um, So, Emily, can you... Tell us a little bit about if someone is interested in getting in on all of this fire business um, that's going to be, as we mentioned, probably ramping up over the next several years. Um, what are some of the ways that people can get into being a read or a um, resource advisor? Was that yeah. it? Resource yep. advisor. Yep. Um, well, even even before just talking about a read, um, I know a number of people who uh, have been on uh, hotshot crews, type two fire, um, firefighting, engine crews, and whatnot. Um, and they those jobs they're really unique. If you're a person who loves being outside, um, has an interest in forestry, and um, you feel like you have a, an adventuresome spirit and you're ready to tackle a fire with an axe and a Pulaski. It might be up your alley. Um, I, I, I have someone I knew in grad school that they paid for a lot of grad school from being a hotshot. Um, so there's oh. a, it can be a really good opportunity f- um, working in fire. And especially if you're right out of high school, right out of college, um, etc. That can be a, a good job to look into. And the Forest Service, Bureau of Land Management, um, they're constantly posting online. So if you're looking for a job, you can start there. Now, if you're an archaeologist, um, whether at the GS5 level or higher, um, it's highly likely that one of the roles that you're going to have to play may be a read, a resource advisor, you're going to need to help with the um, working on fires in some sort of capacity. And so honestly, it's not something I really looked to do. It honestly just fell into my lap. And that happened with the Forest Service and the Park Service. Um, it's something you can try pursuing as well. There are agencies where working in fire is really just not something they do. And they the likelihood of a fire occurring within their um, managed lands is highly unlikely. So if it's something you want to pursue, you are probably going to need to ask your supervisor and get the training and go from there. So Mm -hmm. becoming a read, there's in-person trainings and um, webinars. So you start with that, like how to be a resource advisor, Um, Mm -hmm. depending the level of where you want to be on a fire. If you need to be on the fire line and you want to work directly with the firefighters in a, a potentially hazardous situation, you have to take what's called a pack test. And a pack test is you're wearing um, a, oh gosh, how many pounds was it? It's like, I think it's like 50 pounds and a 50 pound weighted vest. And um, you have to um, walk three miles within, with under uh, 40 minutes. Something along this, like 40 pounds, under 40 minutes, three miles, something like that. And I'm having a bit of a brain fart at the moment of 
the specifics. And the crazy thing about that, so you're wearing this vest and you're power walking. You're not allowed to run. And so it's this kind of crazy movement and you feel like you're going to fall over afterwards. But it's um, this test you have to take for the physicality and the ideas so that you're able to carry the fire backpack, your tools and whatnot, and be able to get yourself out of dangerous situations in a calm and collected manner. So you wouldn't be running. Um, that's kind of their mentality behind it. And so you're just trying to get that. And then there's a smaller version of the pack test where it's like two miles under 35 minutes, something along those lines. And so that's if you're um, going to be maybe at the fire camp or in an area where the fire hasn't gone to yet, um, or you're in a burnout, then you can take that kind of pack test, but you can't be on the front line. And then if you don't take the pack test, you're essentially, you might be in the camp, you might be um, in your office, but you're working in some capacity for the fire. So there's that kind of thing. And then you have to get trained. So the tra- part of the training is literally going on fires and that builds up the number of hours you have in order to become like a certified read. So it's like you're a read in training and then you're a read and that kind of stuff. Cool. And I believe the training changed relatively recently, but that's the general process. And then you're going to need fire boots So they're very highly specialized boots that won't um, completely melt if you're working on a fire. And that's always a good thing. Yes. (laughs) Exactly. And then you get kitted out and usually by your agency, you get um, fire resistant pants and a shirt and the um, the shirt's yellow, the pants are green. And I've always heard them referred to as yellows and greens. And um, you get your backpack and your backpack comes with a standard issued fire shelter And that's what really does make the pack kind of heavy. And you're issued a tool. And the tool can be a Pulaski, which is kind of like, um, has like a a pick axe in the front and like an axe on the back. And, um, or a shovel or a combi. And a little combi has like a little pick and a little shovel. And then there's a rake. And then I can't remember what the other one's called. But I've always liked the combi because it's small and it's light. And it's (laughs) very scary because I've always had to carry all my archaeology crap too. Um, and so, and then a hard hat and gloves. Yeah. And nice. safety goggles, a headlamp, um, fusies. So if you needed to like create like a little, it's like those things you put on the, like if you're in an accident or something on the road, they light up red. Um, you get yeah, specialized water bottles. I'm trying to think what else you get in your kit. <laughs> get all kinds of stuff. You get a lot of things. You get a lot of random things. So yeah. A poncho. Nice. A sleeping bag. Oh, yeah, you get, like, your kit if you have to um, throw everything together. It's your red bag, and you get a sleeping bag, sleeping pad, a tent, and, yeah, and then everything else is yours. So, yeah. Nice. And I'm going to see about trying to uh, put some links to trainings for firework um, in the show comments as well so people can take a look at that. Um, and, yeah, and there's a lot of great resources out there too, just on wildfires in general. Um, like yeah. in, um, indigenous communities doing current work in uh, uh, prescribed fires and working in fire to um, how cultural resources are protected during wildfires. There's all kinds of information out there that's put um, out by the Forest Service, the um, Park Service, BLM to. Um, uh, journals. Oh, and there's been a, a recent article with um, uh, Cassie um, Rippy, 
who uh, we had on the show. Yes. And she talks about how she um, manages and protects cultural resources for the tribes. Yeah, that was a really great article. Yeah, so can link that. that. Yes. Um, So in terms of kind of people who are potentially interested um, at maybe an undergraduate level of of getting into this, are there any field schools that you know of that specify or uh, specialize in kind of read or fire archaeology? Is that something... I think that's really a thing. And how cool would it be if it were? I mean, to be honest, in my undergraduate, I didn't even know cultural resource management was a field that you could even go into, let alone fire archaeology. And um, the role of a, a read on a fire genuinely just surprised me out of nowhere, where they're like, oops, the forest is on fire. Emily, order some fire boots. <laughs> Yeah. And I was like, what are fire boots? And so, I mean, it's like, it it comes kind of, it can come out of nowhere. And so I don't think there really is. I mean, and I could be wrong, but I genuinely don't think there's like field schools or specialized training um, or courses at the undergraduate level in fire archaeology. Fire archaeology is something I mentioned when I teach principles of archaeology or intro to anthropology. I do talk about it. Yeah. But I haven't really noticed it in um, in any textbooks and stuff because there are very few positions that I've seen that where it's specifically like you are only a read archaeologist or you're only a fire archaeologist. Usually it's like you're a federal archaeologist and you also can be a fire archaeologist. I've only seen a couple positions where it's a full time thing and that's in areas with like super sensitive um, cultural resources and or high fire danger areas. Nice. Well, with any, I don't want to say luck, but with any um, positive movement in the funding uh, and supplying of agencies with proper staffing in the coming years, maybe we'll see some more of those jobs pop up across the West. Definitely. And I mean, it always, it can't hurt asking if you are a fire or you're a federal archaeologist and you're interested in fire archaeology. It definitely can't hurt looking into if that's something um, the agency I currently work for, since we mostly work on private land. um, This hasn't been something that has come up, but I think it'd be great if we could be a resource for other agencies in these mega fires. So I figure it's something that, I mean, it always, it can't hurt to ask. Yes. And I can imagine even working with, depending on, you know, what kind of environment you're in, working with private landowners that they would appreciate the resource if such danger were to pop up um, Mm -hmm. as well. So, you know, if if you're in that position, maybe poking some advocacy links or networking um, in that department might also be helpful if you're really wanting to sell getting that job. (laughs) (laughs) Um, On a very different note. I th- I do think, so if people are interested in looking at kind of culture resources and fire in general, there have been a few articles coming out from California about archaeologists working for state parks that were like racing to save culture resources um, in their museums or in from even in offices. And I mean, hearing about these different cases where it's like, you don't always think about necessarily like the management buildings um, mm-hmm. as in housing a ton of cultural resources, but it's like, Oh my gosh, we're not protecting the building per se, but what's in it. And it really made me think about 
like if you have even a small collection within your office, what do you do if there's a fire coming? And this guy, he like raced to different state park offices and was like chucking stuff in his vehicles, like taxidermied animals, records, <laughs> archival stuff, um, um, that kind of thing. And just like chucking as much as he could in his car and just kept going. And other people were trying to do the same. And like all that's left in some of these archives, like photographs and whatnot, are what some of these people have saved. And so it's a very different way for me thinking about fire archaeology. It's like, let's say you're not even a fire archaeologist. How would you on earth protect some of the stuff that's like just in your office? So it's like yeah. an other end of the spectrum of like, you can't necessarily fight the fire. How are you going to protect all this stuff before it gets there? Yeah. Fire plans. Um, that actually makes me think of, I think we, I want to say we discussed this on another episode. I can't remember which, um, with the fire from the Brazilian museum yes. Yes. a few years ago, I think it was a few years ago, um, where it's just kind of like, what, what is your fire plan? Knowing that fires are such a high risk these days um, in certain parts of the world, like where, you know, if, if something were to pop up, what are some backup plans? Like what kind of safety um, mechanisms do you have in your building, around your building? Like if I remember correctly, that building in Brazil, if I remember correctly, they didn't have sprinkler systems in that historic building. Um, so once it caught, there wasn't really much that could have been done. Mm -hmm. Having a fire plan and looking to see what kind of fire resistant or fire retardant um, materials or vault, let's say, that your um, collections are being housed in, or if it's a Quonset hut, which would go up in, you know, a snap of your fingers. And that's honestly what I think most federal agencies have, you know, yeah. their older collections that if they don't have a museum, it's going to be like your Kwanzaa hut or mission 66, like square building. It's yeah. not going to be like top of the line, state of the art sprinkler no. systems. <laughs> no. And that's, that's where, you know, just starting to think about, like you're saying what the plan is. Um, if you don't have a, you know, really good location, uh, for the housing itself, you know, is there a relocation plan and do you have prioritized materials or prioritized collections that need to get out first? Um, backup copies of phys of uh, paper archives. Is there a, uh, are all of your digital archives kept on site? In which case you need to have an offsite and or um, secure wow. cloud component or storage for that as well. Because um, I've definitely seen that raised as an issue where people are like, oh, yeah, we keep all of our digital backups here. Yeah, <laughs> in my desk. Right. <laughs> uh, so <laughs> that's that could be problematic. So it also oh, yeah, like all our file records, I remember at one agency, we're just like, you know, in wooden cabinets. And it's like, well, oh, that's yeah. rude. <laughs> yeah, right. I would also add that. A lot of times with these kind of preparedness for, for any event, whether it's, um, you know, fire, hurricane, tornado, active shooter, and the list goes on. Um, mm -hmm. But I think it's important to both, like, have periodic meetings. I've, I've been in some of those meetings where, like, we're going over the fire plan today. And, like, you get some people who are like, yep, this is really important. You get other people who are like, oh, we do this every year. Why are we doing this? <laughs> but yeah. having that information, 
even if it's stuff you think you know, like having it be refreshed so it's something that's easier to access mm-hmm. is yeah. really important. And I also, um, and I think I read the same article about the guy driving around trying to, to yeah. rescue all of these objects. Okay, let's give it, let's give it uh, Mark, oh dear, Mark Heilkema. Like good, good on him for yeah. trying to protect stuff from state parks in the Santa Cruz district. Yeah. But I think that that piece also mentioned that, you know, he got in touch with the government who hired some movers to come help him, which is great. But if you have a system that is not easily discernible to an outsider, like they're going to grab whatever they can. But whether it's you have all of your um, must rescue first items in the same area so that you can kind of clear area by area, whether you have, you know, your collection system color coded, um, but it has to be something that can be easily, quickly and visually communicated. Yeah, no, that's definitely key. You know, we are talking today about fires, but, you know, there isn't a whole lot of that on the East Coast. Um, That's where you get as Chelsea mentioned for New Orleans or relating to New Orleans is the hurricane danger. And that's hurricane season is upon us as well. Um, And that's a whole other ball of wax, Uh, but similar emergency preparedness concepts should really be explored. Yeah, definitely. I think that's an excellent point. And I mean, I think it's, it's one of those tricky things. A lot of these plans, um, a lot of different uh, ideas of how to protect cultural resources, all of, all of the things uh, usually comes after uh, an event. So I guess the hope is then after these massive wildfires, we'd be able to move forward with better protection plans so that uh, loss won't be as quite intense. Yes. Can mitigate before, not after. But yeah, thank you for uh, listening to me go on and on about one of my favorite topics, fire archaeology. Yay! That's- Super interesting and something that I will probably never do. <laughs> I've I've known a number of firefighters over the years out here and only until recently in the very sudden enormity of the wildfires across the West Coast here have I seen the mass like recruitment of archaeologists into the fire lines. Mm-hmm. And with any luck, you know, positive changes in management will come around. Um, in the next few years, and we won't have to see that pop up again. But that's something that I feel like we should be keeping an eye out for. Other resources, too, on this note uh, that I wanted to mention at the end of this episode are locally across the West, there are calls for volunteers for recovery, archaeologists to help with people who may have been lost in their homes, and recovery of remains for people all across the fire zone out here uh, in the coming year. So those those calls have been made in Oregon that I've seen, as well as California, and I'm sure will continue over the next several months. Keep your eyes out for that. Excellent. Good to know about. I will also add, for anyone who has gotten this far, who is not an archaeologist, but just kind of interested in knowing what's, what's going on with fire lines and archaeology out west, uh, there are still things you can do like vote for people who believe in climate change and will tackle the underlying problems. Exactly. That is in science. Yes. Yeah.
all of those things are greatly appreciated and very important in helping put a lid on this. <laughs> well, any other last-minute comments before we head out for this episode? Oh, no, just uh, check out our other episodes um, on iTunes, and you can see our find our episodes on our blog, the, thewomeninarchaeology.com. Find us on Twitter at, at WomenArchies. We're everywhere. Yes. So, well, thanks everyone for listening and sticking around with us. Keep your ear open for upcoming episodes as well. And if you would like to be a guest on our show, uh, shoot us an email at womeninarchaeology at gmail.com and we can see about arranging a time to sit down and chat. It's been lovely hearing all about fire archaeology, Emily. And thank you, Chelsea, as well, for joining us and sitting down and chatting together again for the first time in a while. That was great. Yeah, thank been you. Great. All right. See y'all again soon. Bye. Bye. Bye.